Every year, the president goes up to Capitol Hill to tell Congress what he wants it to do. It's called the State of the Union Address. But something strange happened. In the middle of the speech, a bird pooped on the president's head and everybody in Washington went out to find that bird. Even me! My name is Fina Mendoza. I solve mysteries in the U.S. Capitol. I get some help from a big orange dog named Senator Something. Together, we are on the trail of this mysterious bird that might be a mythical creature from the Caribbean called a chick turning. You can follow Fina and Senator Something on the new season of the Fina Mendoza Mysteries starting May 3rd, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello! Welcome to the Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is my show. If you're a long-time listener or a first-time listener, either way, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I've got some really interesting stories from the past to share with you today. Both of these stories are true, as always, and both involve boat wrecks, which is not every episode, but we've done some boat wreck episodes. Over the course of these two stories, you're actually going to hear about four boat wrecks. One of those boat wrecks happened to a boat that you've probably heard of. I say that because a story about the Titanic is one of the most requested subjects I get from listeners. So if that was you, here you go. But I bet this is not the story that you were expecting. So let's get this party started, y'all. In May of 1856, a young man with dreams of becoming a riverboat pilot stepped aboard a steamboat named Effie Afton. It would be quite an eventful ride, to say the least. This young man's name was Samuel Clements, and later in life he would become famously known by his pen name, Mark Twain. But in 1856, this Twain-to-be was still looking for something to do with his life and he thought spending his days on the river might just be the ticket. The Effie Afton had been built in Cincinnati just a few months before. With her incredibly powerful engine, she was the pride and joy of her pilot, a man named Captain Hurd. The beautiful boat had been named in honor of another author who also went by a pen name, a poet famous in her day, whose given name was Sarah Elizabeth Harper. Unfortunately, the New Hampshire native would never get a chance to ride on the boat that shared a name with her author alter ego. The Effie Afton left Cincinnati, traveled down the Ohio, and then was scheduled to head up the Mississippi River all the way to St. Paul, Minnesota. Not long after picking up Samuel Clemens, it would have one stubborn obstacle to contend with. There's 2,300 miles of water on the Mississippi River. And there's only one train bridge. Captain Hurd, watch out for it. Uh, yeah, thanks. One bridge, you say? I think I got this. Okay, well, don't say I didn't warn ya. I won't! In the 1850s, there was a struggle going on in America, with two rival parties fighting for the heart and soul of American citizens. In one corner, we have... Team Riverboat, 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 Riverboat. And the new challenger in the other corner, Team Railroad, Railroad, Railroad. 
We could say that home base for Team Riverboat was St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis was a riverboat town nestled at an important point in the mighty Mississippi, exactly where it meets with the nearly equally mighty Missouri River. It was the center of steamboat commerce, which was the lifeblood for the United States. For decades, paddle wheel steamers and flatboats carried nearly everything and everyone to new places. At least, until trains showed up. Dadgum trains! Boo! Railroad! Boo! Uh, hey, what's up, paddle wheels? Or should I say, doddle wheel? How's the slow life treating you? We could say that a home base for Team Railroad was Chicago, Illinois. The city on Lake Michigan practically grew out of nothing on swampland because it became a major hub in the growing railroad. And city leaders there, and in other places, were eager to extend the rail lines as far and as broadly as they could. It would be good for the development of America, they thought. Things got really tense in the rivalry in the 1840s when it was suggested to build a railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. Until a bridge spanned the river, there was no way to get a train across the continent. The waterway blocked all traffic. All traffic except boat traffic, that is. Steamboats made it up and down the river every day, and ferries carried people and products from eastern to western shore. It was a good business for them, so boat owners and companies fought the construction of the bridge with everything they had. They figured railroads would hurt their business, so they opposed a bridge, which they said would be a dangerous obstacle for their pilots. But more likely, they were threatened by the competition. Oh, you can just go around it, you steamboat and fuddy-duddies. Railroads fought back, but it took years. Fourteen years, in fact, to finally build the first railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. When it finally happened in 1856, the Rock Island Bridge connected Rock Island, Illinois to Davenport, Iowa, allowing train traffic from the west to reach Chicago. It was a momentous event, and the opening ceremonies were a big victory for the people of the towns on both sides. And of course, for Team Railroad. Unfortunately, two weeks later, the historic moment would be topped by another. Captain Hurd expertly piloted his boat up the Mississippi River, which was relatively easy work for the powerful engine of the Effie Afton even if it was laden with passengers and cargo. And if it had been in 1855, the only obstacles on the Mississippi to contend with would have been the naturally occurring snags and sandbars and eddies. And an expert like Captain Hurd and his capable crew knew how to handle the craft in the face of those conundrums. But in 1856, of course, there was one extra obstacle, the Rock Island Bridge. Uh, don't don't forget about the bridge, sir. Yes, I know. Bridge, bridge, bridge. It's like it's the only bridge in existence. It's all you all talk about. How could I forget? Uh, well, it's coming up. I see it, I see it. Uh, sir, watch out. Don't hit the bridge. Will you relax, please? I am Captain Hurd. You're not talking to some goofball who thinks he wants to work on a riverboat and should probably just be an author instead, like that guy over there. What's your name, kid? Samuel Clemens, but Captain, I think you should watch out for the, uh... Let me guess. The bridge. Okay, let's all focus and get past this rock I love. What happened? What was that? I hit the bridge. You hit the bridge, but you had one job. 
to be fair, I had more than one job. But, I mean, the bridge was the most important part of that job. And, uh, I hit it. So it didn't go exactly like that. But, with steamboat crews watching from the wharf and a crowd of onlookers, Captain Hurd had trouble with the rush of water coming between the towers built in the river. The powerful current that this caused made things difficult to control, and the Effie Afton crashed. At first, steamboat crews on shore cheered and blew horns in celebration that the boat struck a blow to their despised bridge. But when the Effie Afton caught fire, the tenor changed. Rescue crews saved all the passengers, even the future Mark Twain, but the cargo, along with the boat itself, were destroyed. There was one bridge, and they hit it. Also damaged was that bridge. It too caught fire and was left in disrepair, and it took a lot of money and hard work to get it trainworthy again. There was also a significant loss of money tied to the fiery end of the Effie Afton, so the owners of the boat, Team Riverboat, sued the company in charge of the railroad bridge to recoup their lost expenses. Team Railroad hired an Illinois attorney named Abraham Lincoln for their defense in court. And as with many squabbles between industry competitors, the case was long and tedious. Abraham Lincoln's closing arguments alone took two entire days. And in the end, he could have reduced them to something like this. For like four months out of the year, much of the northern part of the Mississippi River freezes and no steamboat can go anywhere. Meh. But a train can roll through there all year long. How are you going to argue with that? Also, why is north-to-south traffic more important than east-to-west, huh? If a person can go upriver with stuff, they should be able to cross it easily with stuff, too. Also, it's just good business. The case was thrown out, and once the bridge was repaired, it continued to be an essential path for trains as they crossed the mighty Mississippi River. And eventually, boats figured out how to navigate the obstacle. It all eventually led to more and more bridges, but Team Riverboat wasn't done. One St. Louis group sued the Rock Island Bridge Company again, and it made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court in 1863. By this time, Samuel Clemens was writing for a newspaper in Nevada and calling himself Mark Twain, and that former lawyer for Team Railroad was now President Abraham Lincoln. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. 
So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and this month we're going to hear from Kate, who, when she sent this back in May of last year, was on her way to Norfolk, Virginia. One of the great heroes in the Korean War was a U.S. Marine named Sergeant Reckless. Reckless made 51 trips across battle zones carrying munition and evacuating wounded Marines. Reckless received two Purple Hearts for injuries inflicted during these hazardous missions. Reckless saved countless lives, but what made Sergeant Reckless most unique was the fact that she was a horse. Reckless was calm in the midst of chaos. She was taught to step over communication lines and barbed wire, and to seek cover when hearing the word incoming. Reckless was the only animal ever to receive an official rank in the U.S. Marine Corps. Kate, thank you so much. That was awesome. I love animal stories. Who doesn't, right? There's some great stuff out there, and that's not one that I'd ever heard before. So thank you for sharing that. If anyone else out there has a you have 30 seconds to submit, it's super easy. There's information on our website. You can just email an audio file to hello at thepastandthecurious.com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Yes, it's quiz time, and uh, I'm going for something here, so come along for the ride, okay? On April 14th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated while attending a play at Ford's Theater. What play was he watching? The play at Ford's Theater that night was called Our American Cousin, a comedy that was very popular in the day. And actually, future president Ulysses S. Grant and his wife Julia were supposed to join the Lincolns that night, but canceled at the last minute. Okay, here's question number two. On April 14th, 1935, the skies in Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, and other areas of the Great Plains went dark in the middle of the day. Due to what? Dust. It was dust. April 14th is known as Black Sunday, and it was the most dramatic event of a years-long drought known as the Dust Bowl. On that day, clouds of dust stretched for miles from the east to the west and towered hundreds of feet high in the air. It was impossible to see your hand in front of your face, according to witness and folk singer Woody Guthrie. Dust found its way into homes, cars, barns, anywhere and everywhere. The dust storm was so bad that days later, some dust particles had made it all the way to the eastern states and the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, and question number three. On April 14, 1912, a boat known as HMS Titanic ran into what in the North Atlantic Ocean? It was an iceberg, and the collision happened at 11.40 p.m. on April 14th, and the boat sank after midnight on the 15th. All three of those things happened on April the 14th. Sounds like a pretty tough day, huh? I actually learned about all three of these things happening on the same day because of a song written by one of my absolute favorite musicians of all time. Her name is Gillian Welch. 
Um, and uh, so, yeah, I guess this is dedicated to Gillian Welch. Thanks, Gillian. You know, often in this day and age, people who board an ocean liner are heading off for an enjoyable trip, one where the leisurely act of floating across the sea is one of the main attractions. But in the early 1900s, most people boarding ocean vessels were making a necessary journey from point A to point B, and the slow, often arduous trip across the ocean was the only way to do it. Unless they were holding on to a first-class ticket, there was little to enjoy. Yet for other people, like Violet Jessup, being on a boat was a job. And while many of the ship's crew members probably didn't enjoy their work very much, Violet, for the most part, did enjoy her time as a stewardess on a number of ocean liners. Of course, there were a few bad days, though. In Violet's case, there were three of them. Violet's parents had moved from their native Ireland to Argentina in the 1880s with the hopes of starting a sheep farm. Not long after she was born in 1887 in the South American country, Violet fell ill with tuberculosis. Doctors did not like the odds and told her parents to expect the worst. But the young girl surprised everyone and demonstrated an incredible ability to survive. Soon, healthy and rambunctious in her home near the Andes Mountains, Violet was scampering around with a pet armadillo and eagerly welcoming a growing flock of siblings. When tragedy struck again and the family lost their father in Violet's teenage years, they all boarded a ship bound for England. It must have felt comfortable or otherwise enticing to Violet because in just a few years, she'd spend most of her days on similar boats. In the meantime, it was her mother's turn. For the family's early days in Europe, Violet became the main caretaker of her siblings while Mama Jessup worked aboard an ocean liner. Once she had reached adulthood, Violet too found herself sailing the seas as a stewardess among several different ships. Violet was a pleasant person, so pleasant in fact that many of the passengers she encountered, cared for, or otherwise helped, wrote letters to friends and family specifically mentioning her by name. So today, archivists can find Violet mentioned in random letters written at sea, sent to people in Europe and America, and all those letters are now preserved for the sake of history. But it wasn't all about life at sea. When a ship she was working aboard came to port, an excited young Violet disembarked for days. She treasured the time that she got to spend exploring the unfamiliar and the thrilling joy of new cities. New York was a favorite. By 1910, Violet had worked for a few smaller shipping lines. She had told herself that she did not want to work for the White Star Line, a British company with the most famous fleet of ships in the world. She heard that their routes across the North Atlantic were treacherous and plagued with things like bad weather and icebergs. She also heard the first-class passengers on White Star liners could be pretty demanding. Despite this, when she found herself with no other options, she came aboard as a White Star stewardess, tending to passengers, serving meals, caring for the seasick, and helping with anyone who needed helping. The White Star Line changed the world in the years before Violet was born when it debuted a fleet of ships known as the Oceanic Class. They were large, carrying almost 1,200 passengers, and they could make good speed with their combination of sails and steam engine. But by the time Violet was on Team White Star, they were hard at work on an all-new type of ship. The biggest, 
fastest, sturdiest, most powerful, and most beautiful that anyone had ever seen before. The Olympic class. White you wanted a big ship, and now we've got the ship for you. At nearly 900 feet long, the Olympic-class ships are twice, twice as long as those puny other ships at sea. Need to carry a lot of people? Look no further. You can fit so many people in this, baby. 2,400 passengers, and that's in addition to the crew of 900 needed to operate each of these marvelous machines. Splendid grand staircases and ornate ballrooms that rival the finest hotels in Paris and New York are aboard each of these sister ships. Oh, what's that, you ask? Sister ships? That's right. Each one of these sister ships are truly a miracle of engineering extravagance and human ability. That's why we made not one, not two, but three of these amazing beauties. The first one off the line, the Olympic. Namesake for the class of ship. The other two, not far behind. That would be the Titanic and the Britannic. When the marvelous Olympic, the first of the sister ships to be completed, set sail, the kind and well-liked Violet was specifically chosen to join the crew of the incredible craft. And she was aboard, busily doing her job, on September 20th, 1911, when the RMS Olympic was making its way through a narrow strait between the Isle of Wight and Great Britain. Traveling nearby and moving in a parallel direction was a British Navy vessel known as HMS Hawk. Everything felt normal aboard both ships, but the captain of the Hawk was surprised when the Olympic turned hard to starboard, which is a seafaring way to say, to the right. The hard right left him no time to correct his own course and avoid a collision. Now, the bow, or the front end of the Hawk, was made specifically to ram into other ships. The idea was that a full-on ram could damage, bash a hole in, and even sink their adversaries, all while remaining relatively unscathed itself. The problem was that though the Olympic was not an enemy ship, the bow of the Hawk still did what it was supposed to do. In a flash, there was a crash. Luckily, no one acted rash. A few people went splash. Violet grabbed her stash. She was evacuated and still collected her cash. At first, Violet seems to have thought very little about this accident. It was a marvelous ship and the first of the revolutionary Olympic-class boats, but she barely even mentions the event. After the crash, she was taken to shore, she got her paycheck, and awaited her next assignment for the White Star Line while the Olympic underwent major repairs. Again, handpicked on account of her stellar record and endearing nature, she soon found herself assigned to the maiden voyage of the sister ship. Perhaps you've heard of it. It was called the Titanic. It's a safe bet that most of us know, basically, what happened to the Titanic? If you don't, in a nutshell, it goes like this. The Titanic was the pride and joy of the White Star Line. It was immense, beautiful, and powerful. And thanks to the great engineering, it was dubbed unsinkable. As the Titanic made its way across the ocean from England to New York with over 
2,200 people aboard, the captain received reports of icebergs in the path. The information was largely ignored and the boat continued its path to America. On the night of April 14, 1912, the boat collided with one of those icebergs, which led to the boat sinking. By early the next day, the boat was lost, as were the lives of 1,500 people who had been on board. To put it in an even smaller nutshell, it was really nice, really fancy, and people were really proud. No one said it would sink, it sank. Only a third of the people on board survived. One of those people, you guessed it, Violet Jessup. Two for two, woo! When the iceberg hit, Violet was asked to help get people to the deck and ready to board lifeboats, which she did. But then, when it became clear that things were making a turn for the worst, everyone was evacuated with much more fervor. Violet was put on a lifeboat with passengers and a few fellow crew members, and one baby, which someone thrust into her arms at the last moment. Despite the cold, harrowing, and terrifying night, at least she had something to focus on, a stranger's baby. Violet, again stretching her luck, made it to the morning and was rescued by the Carpathia, a ship responding to the distress signal that the Titanic had blasted to the world as it sank. Someone we can only assume to be the baby's mother, stretched her luck too, because on board the Carpathia, the baby was suddenly taken from Violet's arms by a woman who said nothing to her at all, focused solely on the child. Afterwards, Violet was plagued by the horrors that she had seen, but was also matter-of-fact in her journals about one great regret. She was saddened that she had left her toothbrush on board. It most certainly sank to the bottom of the ocean with the Titanic. Violet did like having fresh breath. Now, you might think that being in two shipwrecks on the first two Olympic-class steamers would be enough to keep a woman like Violet on land, or at least off of Olympic-class steamers, especially when the most recent one was the infamous and catastrophic wreck of the Titanic. But would you be right? You'd be worse than right. You'd be wrong. Violet couldn't say no to the sea life, nor the paychecks that came with it, and, you know, with those paychecks, she could buy any number of new toothbrushes. Of course, there weren't as many White Star jobs as there once had been. A couple of accidents significantly impacted their fleet, and fewer boats meant fewer work opportunities for people like Violet. The Olympic was eventually repaired, but of course, the Titanic remains at the bottom of the ocean still today. So she worked for a few smaller lines over the next relatively uneventful and shipwreck-free years, and as she approached her late 20s, she began to hear the call to join nursing. When she had been a child sick in a hospital in Argentina, she had desired to be a nurse. And with World War I in full swing, there was a great need for nurses throughout Europe. She trained in hospitals on land, and when it came time to head out as a professional, she was assigned to a British ship stationed near Greece. It was a passenger ship that had been converted by the British Army into a hospital ship and it felt creepily familiar to her. Uh, what did you say this ship's name was? The Britannic. The Britannic? By chance, does the Britannic have any sister ships? Yes, two. The Olympic and the Titanic. Have you heard of them? Um, yeah, I've heard of them. The third and final Olympic-class ship was originally supposed to head out with passengers in 1915. 
but the British government thought such a big, safe boat would be better used as a temporary floating hospital to take care of the British soldiers who were wounded in the Great War. The Britannic was bigger and safer than either of the sister ships, which may or may not have eased Violet's mind. It certainly must have felt eerie to walk the halls and staircases that felt nearly identical to those of the sunken Titanic. But Violet had a job to focus on, the care of passengers in the waterbound hospital. On November 21st, 1916, her focus was broken, as was the hull of the ship when the Britannic hit an underwater mine that the Germans had laid as a trap. Ugh, not again. Hope I go three for three, just in case. I better go get my toothbrush. The evacuation of the Britannic went smoother than that of the Titanic, at least in the number of lives lost. But it was frantic and dangerous, especially since the captain did not turn off the massive propellers as the ship sank. In the melee, Violet hit her head. It didn't bother her at first, but after years of headaches, she discovered that her skull had been fractured during the ordeal. And despite everything, despite being on board for the wreck of all three Olympic sister ships, Violet still spent more years on the boat. And she wasn't alone. There was one other crew member, a stoker named Arthur John Priest, who had been along for the ride on all three occasions as well, and also lived to tell the tale. Violet eventually left the sea behind her, serving as a nurse again in World War II and working other various landlubber jobs. She died in 1971 at the age of 83, miles and miles away from the ocean, and I think it's safe to assume that her teeth still looked great. Well, all right. Thank you for listening to episode 67 of The Past and the Curious. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun for me to put together and share it with you. Um, I have some Patreon people to thank. Uh, and also, oh, also, Sam and Zoe in Birmingham, Alabama, brothers and sister, brother and sister, who have birthdays like right jam-packed next to each other. Sam is turning 12, I think, next week, depending on... Yeah, next week. And Zoe as well. So, hey, happy birthday to you both. I'm so glad that you are out there. And there is another birthday. Quinn in Acton, Maine. Turning eight. Happy birthday to you, Quinn. And I'm so glad that you are out there too. Uh, I want to also thank Ruby. I think you're in Australia. You sent me a really great question. Um, and I was late getting you an answer. But there is an answer that uh, I just sent. Um, and also Torin uh, sent me... Did a, um, Torin did a, a school project on the meat shower and was kind enough to send an article about it, like a primary source from the time period that I had never actually seen before. Um, it was on archive.org. So that was very, very cool. Thank you for doing that. Um, Elliot and Elodie, you will have a song next month, um, but uh, I need to know what to make that song about. So give it some thought and send me a note. Now, Lucy and Drew from Charlottesville, Virginia, which happens to be one of my favorite places in the country. I love Charlottesville. Been there many times. Love it, love it, love it. I bet it's really cool to live there. Um, I have a song for you. Um, so, yeah, here it is. And everyone else, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of the show. And tell somebody about it, you know? That's all, uh, that's all you can do to help. Appreciate it. Bye. I think in Latin they say 
Natalis for birthday, Lucy Felix Natalis. I hope it's the right way to say Happy birthday, Lucy. And as for you, Drew, happy birthday to you too. I hope you spent the day solving Rubik's Cubes, which is something I can't do. Bye, everybody. Talk to you again soon.